This is the Future of HR Podcast, episode 58. And a talent review is knowing what you need and what you got. So it's supply and demand. How much time you spend on the demand side or the supply side depends on what you're trying to accomplish. You know, truly understanding a specific talent population, for instance, a certain level of leadership, a team, a group, a business unit. And so I liken it to understanding your asset portfolio. What are they delivering and how are they delivering it? Who are your highest potential people and what do they want and what can they do and when? And which is why I sort of refer to it as talent planning. It's more about assessing in order to take action. And so like any other business process, talent review is important is sort of a function of execution, right? Otherwise, it's really an expensive information share. What makes a talent review successful? Why is it important that your talent review be action-oriented and deliver outcomes for your business? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, I'm very lucky to have not one, but two amazing guests. Joining us today is Ann Gotti and Joe Garvis. Ann is not only a second-time guest on the podcast, she originally was on episode 12, and I encourage you to check it out. But more importantly, she is an expert in talent management and organizational effectiveness, and she has led talent for Ecolab, Bumble, and currently leads the global talent organization at General Mills. In addition, Anne is also a proud member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches, which is an exclusive worldwide community of coaches and leadership experts. Joining Anne is Joe Garbus. Joe is also an expert in talent management and organizational effectiveness, and he's led talent for the New York Times, Celgene, Marshall McLennan, and now PVH Corp. Joe's also known for bringing his business-grounded, insight-driven, and deeply practical solutions to his clients, and he's also got a great sense of humor, which I think you'll hear today. Today's episode is number two in what I call the What Works series, and we're going to go deep on talent reviews to help make yours better, more productive, and have more impact. Specifically, in my conversation with Ann and Joe, we'll discuss why your talent review needs to be smart and simple and how to do it why you should think of talent reviews as a diagnostic and planning tool, why talent reviews should focus on development, not just assessing performance and potential, why establishing consistent and shared definitions for evaluating and differentiating talent is critical for the success of a talent review, and why the best talent reviews are action-oriented and result in tangible plans, outcomes, and progress. Ann and Joe, welcome to the Future of HR podcast. How are you both doing? Awesome, JP. Thank you. It's so good to be here with you and Anne. Looking forward to the conversation. Delighted to be here. Excited to spend the time with you both. Well, I'm excited to spend some time with you both, too, and to tackle an important topic, talent review. We've known each other for a long time. You're both experts in talent management. You've been through lots of talent reviews in your career. So I think this will be a really valuable conversation for a lot of HR folks out there. And so let's kick this off, Joe, with you. Let's start with the basics. In your opinion, what should we really be trying to achieve with a talent review and why are they important? I appreciate the question. I'm a big fan of the basics as well. I think, you know, really focusing in on the foundation of things 
as opposed to some of the sexy objects out there that we chase are really important to and very compelling for our businesses that we serve. So I think for the companies I've worked for, JP, people are the largest cost line or investment line to begin an analogy I like to make. And to optimize that investment, you need to understand the investment, appreciate how the investment is performing and what it can do to perform better to optimize the portfolio and achieve the portfolio's aims, which for the portfolio, whether that's, you know, to extend the metaphor, the company, that's sort of long-term growth targets, et cetera. And for the individual, that's career success, retirement, buying a second home, those kinds of things. And a talent review is knowing what you need and what you got. So it's supply and demand. How much time you spend on the demand side or the supply side depends on what you're trying to accomplish. You know, truly understanding a specific talent population, for instance, a certain level of leadership, a team, a group, a business unit. And so I liken it to understanding your asset portfolio. What are they delivering and how are they delivering it? Who are your highest potential people and what do they want? And what can they do and when? Which is why I sort of refer to it as talent planning. It's more about assessing in order to take action. And succession is a big piece of that. Who can do the roles that are most critical to the company? And so like any other business process, talent review is important as a function of execution, right? Otherwise, it's really an expensive information share. Talent planning versus talent review, I think is a really interesting insight. And what are your thoughts on why we do talent reviews and why they're important? Yeah, I'll build on Joe's really important remark around this idea that it's kind of active and ongoing. The planning itself is active, as is the asset we're planning around. And so when I think about talent reviews, I think about them fundamentally as a diagnostic and planning tool. And diagnostic and planning tools essentially look at forecasts. And forecasts are, you know, really evaluated by their relevance and their accuracy. Did we look at and think about and plan for the right thing? Did those things end up mattering? And were we right? Or were we mixed or even way off the base? And so I think when we're doing that diagnostic work and we're thinking about that planning, it's really, were we right on the talent requirements? Did we have the conversation about what is needed and why? And Joe alluded to that a moment ago, and particularly when he talked about the notion of, do you focus more on supply or more on demand? It depends a little on what your requirements are, how stable they are, or if they're changing quite a bit. Were we right about the talent supply? Did we have shared language and shared standards for evaluating and differentiating talent? And were we prepared to respond when things inevitably went as we did not plan? Because despite the fact that we do a lot of planning in the talent review process, even the best companies don't plan everything exactly as it happens. And so I think we had talked about this once not too long ago, JP, this idea that plans can sometimes be of little importance, but planning is essential. This active work and discipline around preparing, anticipating, responding. Talent reviews and talent planning, to use Joe's term, really help us do that. So diagnostic tool really helps us forecast what we need, what we have, and whether it mattered or not as we look back and what our business most required. What I love you guys are both really focused on the business piece, right? Because you're saying really the talent is a tool that we've got to be leveraging it's an asset. It's an investment for the firm. And the talent review or talent planning is the tool to make sure that we are forecasting, like finance might forecast a budget or forecast what it's going to look like for 2024 or a five-year plan. You're talking about doing the same thing with leaders, right? With critical roles. That is so important. Did you learn that over time? Where did you learn good talent reviews from? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, so I was really lucky. I'll take a stab at this one. I think when I first 
started working in HR at a graduate school, I worked in manufacturing facilities. And what's so great about starting your career in a manufacturing facility or at a store in a retail environment is that they really do run like micro editions of the full company, right? You've got your own sort of talent supply and demand issues. You're running what feels like in some ways an intact business. Of course, it's not. You're part of a bigger system, but you're able to play with some of those skills earlier in your career. And so I felt very lucky to start my career in an environment where we were running manufacturing and production lines and being able to use some of those metaphors as we thought about every kind of raw material and finished product we were trying to create. And so that was just instilled as a discipline, but you know, how you find talent, how you develop that talent, how you plan for and move that talent around and what happens when you don't get it right. When you treat it as an episodic focus of attention, when you don't really integrate the so what now what into some of that work. You know, I think there are things that you learn over time. And as you begin doing this work at higher levels in the organization that come in time. But what's been most interesting to me is in environments of high change, not having these pieces right and the consequences that that can provide has been really instructive. So I've appreciated very much getting to hone this over time and seeing its value and contribution to our business success in a variety of different environments. I love that. And, you know, it's sort of like when you hold a cat by the tail, you learn something that you can learn in no other way. I think just being sort of involved is such a critical aspect of this. There's no really formal mechanism for training in these things. Typically in the HR profession, I know we have you know mutual friends that are really driving this by way of Mark Efron and Jim Shanley, trying to really drive an approach to helping people get really disciplined and good at this. I had the very, very, very privileged benefit of being at GE in my first for-profit sector job as a mid-level person or slightly lower, sitting in or being actively involved in talent reviews in a very mature process was eye-opening. Eye-opening in two ways. One, of course, because really learn what it means to have a conversation at a certain level of depth about people in a way that actually is somewhat more objective than emotional. That's one thing. And secondly, you also learn how much is enough. And that's just a bit of a theme that I pulled through throughout my career, which is how do we keep it very, very simple and tight to get to what we're trying to do? Because too much is not only too much, it actually gets in the way. So that was another piece of having that experience early on in my career. Both those experiences are terrific. And as you were talking, Joe, and and about your early career, it just made me think we should also encourage that people are listening, those HR leaders or talent leaders to pull in people more junior early in their career into these processes, help them understand why you're doing it, how to do it, get them involved early so they see what good looks like. Because I think it's a skill you need to go through a couple cycles to really hone. But I want to go to the next question, which is let's talk about the preparation that needs to happen before a talent review to make sure you have a great talent review conversation. You cannot just walk into a meeting with executives and have a talent review conversation. Joe, do you want to start? Sure thing. So, you know, ground rule is always be smart and simple. Less is more. And then it depends on what you're solving for, to Anne's point a little earlier. So typically in a review with a leader and their direct reports, if it is succession, you know, two important roles, who are high potential, emerging talent to support, plans to grow and diversify the talent, I think are really, really important core aspects of, the, of a talent review. Years ago, you might recall Dave Small at McDonald's, he said to me once, know the hell out of your talent. And that actually sums it up for me. All too often, practitioners or leaders come with names on paper 
or a cursory understanding of the talent. And you need to come knowing if someone sort of is mobile, for instance, you know, and when, when are the kids graduating? What's their partner status if they have one? And what does that mean for them and their sort of career arc? So really getting tight about the specific people that you'll be discussing and discussing how to help them grow and help them deliver more for the company. In regard to every talent discuss, what is their track record of performance, aspirations, our aspirations for them, the gap to the next thing that we want them doing and they want to be doing, and then current actions to close that gap is another important part of the preparation. And then I think knowing the critical roles, so that's the demand side. What are the roles that are going to be more meaningful to discuss or maybe even more urgent to discuss to do the forecasting that Anne spoke about earlier? And then the bench for those roles and an assessment of the readiness to take those roles of each of those people. So those are, to me, the core elements of prep. If you've got that, you've got a lot to go on and a lot to be able to produce value from. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the only thing I would build on that is thinking a little bit about clarifying what those objectives are up front so that everyone comes in with the right mindset and how we'll behave in the meeting. Who has what role? How do we navigate differences of opinion? How does that link to other business processes? Sometimes when organizations are a little bit less mature, they may have talent review because they know they're supposed to. Instead of thinking about how does it integrate into the overall enterprise business planning process and what other processes and decision forms does it inform? So, and you made a really good point around what we expect the leaders to be sharing, discussing. That is really, really important because if they have a different expectation of what that meeting is going to be like or what they want to get across or what the objective is, it can go sideways. Tell us more about how do you think about and what do you share with leaders ahead of this meeting so they come prepared? Yeah, I think getting really clear on what we're trying to do while honoring that there are other important things that are also valuable to do, but outside of this forum. So that there's a tendency sometimes for leaders, particularly those who are maybe newer to this work, to treat these as advocacy sessions. I'm coming in and I'm going to get my person in the right box. I'm going to build the right development for them. And I will have been successful in my role as a leader if I'm able to really advocate. And instead, the real work is to have trusting, collaborative, calibrating conversations where we recognize that everyone that is a topic of discussion is full of human potential and valuable to our organization and plays really important roles in our day-to-day business. But the work we're doing here today is a little different. And it's about discernment and about listening to each other and deciding together how to build a shared point of view. And I think helping people understand that that's really the most useful contribution they can make can be very valuable. The second is one that Joe alluded to, which is knowing our talent and knowing ourselves. So do we know our talent well enough to really advocate? And I'm using that word carefully. I don't mean to confuse with my last point. To really articulate or express is perhaps a better way of saying their aspirations, what they accept, where they are in their career and what trade-offs they are or are not willing to make. Consequences of decisions that we make. Those are all things that the leader should be able to speak about on behalf of the talent they're discussing. And then I also think that it's important for us to know ourselves because we bring some of that in. And the more we know our talent, frankly, the more likely we are to bring some of that in. So one of the things that I've appreciated in some forums like this I've been part of is actually opening the meeting with kinds of things that we often hear that aren't actually very productive. Like, I bet they won't want to move. They just had a baby. 
or gosh, I'm not sure that they'd be up for that kind of travel with two small children. Or I asked her three years ago about that role and she wasn't interested, right? So it's starting to even just normalize like that those kinds of things go through our minds, but that they actually are not necessarily appropriate, frankly, and also really limit the possibility and the range of the conversation, the planning that we can have. So how do you get in front of some of the biases? And how do you help leaders realize that those biases may be even well-intended so that there isn't shame or defensiveness, but just really helping them get into a mindset of objectivity, collaboration, neutrality in a way, while also being really informed on both, again, our requirements and their people. And I love Joe's quote. I think it's really important to know deeply, not only the talent composite, but the operations and expectations of our colleagues. This is why you spend a minute with Ann Gotti and you're smarter for it. The thinking, doing, human ratio is off the charts. I would add one thing that I think is also important to the sort of ground rules and the operating principles of the discussion to make it more valuable. And that is keeping things in the context business, keeping things in the context of the need. All too often, I think we either catastrophize or we sort of get really worried that if you say something that appears to be negative about someone's competence, their aspiration, their ability, the next thing you know is you're condemning them to the sort of eternal flames. And it's got to be kept in context. People are not bad or good. It's a matter of, are they contributing what they need to? Can they contribute more? What do they want? How do we connect the dots on all of them? I think rounding it in that context is really, really important. Human emotion seems to take over a lot. And I think it's, how do you continue to control for that? I think Anne's methodologies will really work and do work. When I think about talent review, you have two main roles. And number one is getting that shared knowledge, calibrating on someone's real assessment of how they're performing and where they can go. So it's really about aligning as a team saying, is this fact and reality or what are we really seeing? And if we're seeing potential, why are we seeing that? And how does that versus other people and Potential for what we'll get to in a second, right around potential for that role. And the second, I think that we, I think we miss the most on in talent reviews is getting into the development opportunity. A little bit more of how can this person improve? What would actually help them? Yeah, we can, can, to your point, Joe, we can focus a little more on the negative. Oh, they don't have this background. They have this experience. Well, then he's like, well, how could we help them get that? Because we can't go find a perfect person. They probably, they may exist in some executive search candidate slate, maybe. Probably not. They'll probably have some issue that we want to fix when we bring that new person in. So how do we help them get better and things that will improve the business and make sense for them? So I think those are my two ads. What are the questions that you think HR and talent leaders should be asking their leaders to help clarify the assessment, how they're calibrating talent, how they're thinking about? Are there a few go-to questions that you'd like to ask and pull out? Yeah, I mean, I think that my questions often sit in a few different buckets. Why do you feel that way? What would be the worst thing that would happen if we did it anyway? And, you know, we asked in a different version, but essentially it's what's the risk of not moving after you've articulated the risk of moving? Let's look at risk from the other side, right? So tell me more is kind of the first bucket. The second is let's look at risk the other way. How do we sort of flip that direction? The third might be what's behind that opinion and or are there other data points that would contradict it? So my goal with asking questions is to try to understand the motive behind the question, to try to open the aperture so that we're looking at opinions and assessments a little bit more broadly, and to invite in objectivity wherever we can. 
through that room and using those other leaders as a calibrating body, again, in a way that helps the leader come to some of those reflections on their own. I think we've all been in talent calibration conversations before where when asked in a less sort of inviting way, the response can be to sort of more fully, you know, dive in and dig into that opinion versus saying, you know, that's a fair point. Here's what I really worry about. The other thing I think about is a leader taught me this question, what would have to be true for this to work, right? What would have to be true for this to work? And that's that idea of kind of looking at that risk the other way. Let's assume we're going to do it anyway, knowing it's not without risk. What would we then have to do to make it less risky? What is the risk of not doing it? What are things that we can put in place if we do do it so that we are, again, mitigating our risk? And I think sometimes those questions invite in a bit more possibility. And then you said something important a minute ago, JP, which is this idea of what is our obligation to shore some of that risk up? So we need to put some things on the employee and on the leader, of course, but what do we own as an organization to help them grow and to set them up for success? I think there are a number of strategies that you can employ when you do that versus saying sort of, nope, not ready or not the right one. And then you move past it. It's so much easier to default to no. When you move the question to defaulting to yes, it helps. And the way I do that again are, tell me what's behind your remarks. What would be the worst thing that happened? Or how would we mitigate risk if we did do it? What would have to be true? And then how do we get a little bit more objective? What are some other points of view that sort of widen the aperture? I would say, you know, just particularly off the point of what we can do to support and make someone successful, starting with yes to Anne's point. I love the question is, what is the one thing they need right now to get that support to, to gain that next level to move forward? What is that one thing, not five things, one thing that's most urgent for us to ensure that they can continue to grow and develop? I want to back up just for a second, though. One of the things I think we're alluding to, but not saying clearly just yet, is the notion of how important shared language and consistent operating definitions are to these conversations. So what is actually, what do we mean by performance? Is it over time? Is it, you know, a point in time? What is potential and how are we looking? And I know we'll probably end up talking about that, JP. Mobility timeframe, readiness criteria, role requirements. Because to build off of what Anne said around mitigating risks, supporting someone so they get to that point where a leader can say, I feel really good that I can mitigate the risk of putting someone in a role and give them a chance to grow and develop as well as contribute in a way that is acceptable that we can really support in a time frame that works, right? And I think to get to that point, I love this notion of are people 60 to 70% ready for something? And how do we know that? What's the evidence to Anne's point? What's the evidence that tells us? What are the indicators that tell us? I think this notion of operating definitions is critical, though, to being able to actually level set the discussion so it's much easier. The world's mostly defining something in the same way. It's that much easier to pull it through the discussion. It's such a great point. And, you know, not to build on your build, but I can't help it. I think that that is work that has to happen far in advance of the meeting, right? And so when we were talking about what do you do to get prepared? Making sure there's shared language, operating definitions, as Joa said, frameworks. We can't be training as we do this. I think we've got to really be sure that there is good conversation and debate, frankly, because there can be different points of view on how we capture some of the terms that Joe was talking about. And all of those might be right. What is context-based, the best definition? And how do we all align that that's what we mean? So when we say X, we all know what X means and we all mean X when we say it. I think that's so important. And any other forecasting 
process. You have units of measurement, you have standard terms, you have success criteria that is widely understood. We would have to have the same things in order to do this successfully. And certainly for a scaled process, you need that because you'll need to look across groups. And so systemically, you get into a lot of trouble when you don't have kind of that shared framework and shared language, which is understood as well. I love that you guys brought that point up because it's something that I think at times we can't focus maybe too much on as a field, right? Because what's the tool? Is it a nine box? Which I'm going to ask you in a second. If you want it, is a nine box still the right tool or not? But even definitions for each box. But I think the point you made is right, is there's got to be a shared language. Because if you go in that room and there's not, there will absolutely be disagreements that aren't productive, but they're actually just over definitions. Now you're into semantics versus, are, are we really talking about someone being 60, 70% ready, which I love that point, Joe. You know, is that enough? So I think this is a really good point. But I want to talk more about the nine box because there's a lot of, there's sort of two camps. Nine box has been around. It's been around for a long time. But there's also some people who are starting to stop using the nine box and feel like it's actually a limiting factor. This might be our most controversial part of the entire conversation, so I'm prepared for it. But <laughs> what do you guys think? Joe, where do you see on the nine box? Are you pro nine box or against the nine box? Well, respectfully, JP, I think it's sort of the wrong question, right? <laughs> um, and let me tell you why. It's sort of like the old question. Do we tell them or do we not tell them their high potential? Wrong question. So, you know, but I love it. I love that you asked and I think it's really salient point because tools matter and how we do stuff matters enormously, right? So the reason I say that somewhat humorously is sort of what we need, I think, getting back to our point about investment and forecasting, we need concrete and simple ways to assess the talent pool. Any assessment done well should yield whether someone meets the threshold of proven performance over time and whether they exhibit evidence of potential for specific things the organization needs. They help you make more objective bets or investment choices is how I would look at whatever tool you use. So I'm not being cute. Whatever tool should help you make investment choices. Then it's a question of simplicity in my mind. So least amount of information and work to get to the best information or best outcome, if you will. And to a degree, it's culture. What do leaders like to use? What fits the way we talk about things? I think that has to be woven in. It's reality. I actually prefer the four box, if you will, you know, with a space on the side for performance issues. And I feel like that's a super simple way to talk about things. But again, it's about how do you get to the right information that helps you make an investment choice? And then how do you end up pulling that through is the most important. What do you do with that knowledge? Well, we invest. And how do we invest? Here's a certain amount of activities for you or a certain amount of compensation or a certain amount of promotion, et cetera. I completely agree. I had the same reaction that Joe did when you asked the question. And I think the only other piece I would add into it is this idea of most organizations are not greenfield sites where you're showing up and get to build everything from scratch. So as an HR practitioner, I would encourage listeners to think about where are we today? What tools and frameworks and definitions are familiar? Are they working? And only make changes where you are repairing something that needs repair. So I think sometimes we burn up a lot of our social capital. We burn up a lot of organizational capacity. We burn up leader energy and focus on changing tools that are working well enough. At some point, it's sort of like, you know, the Peloton bike that sits in my basement. It's not the Peloton's fault that I haven't reached my fitness goal. <laughs> so 
So how we think about, you know, are the tools understood? Are they working? And then let's just get the best out of these tools that we can. If you have the opportunity to make some changes, thinking about all of the things that Joe had said is are really, really important. I love how you reframed it. And so that's why you're on the podcast today. <laughs> we will reframe but all questions henceforth. <laughs> please do. I think everyone will appreciate that. I'll take the feedback. You're on. I do think, though, the reason why I asked is because a lot of times we do get so wrapped up in the tools. And I think what I'm hearing from both of you is pick a model and go with it. And it's really about the conversation, right? And is that conversation, is that model, the tools you're using enough to make good decisions have the right conversation so you get to a point where you understand the talent, know what they need to do to grow, and can forecast your future needs, right? If you're doing that, don't worry about if you're using Corn Fairy's nine-box model, Mark Efron's nine-box model, you're not using a nine-box, using a four-box, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter as long as the leaders understand and it's going to work for your organization. So I think that's a brilliant point. In my experience, also in talent reviews, I'm curious what you've seen, but I think there's some classic issues that sort of come up, right? You will see this, or you should be prepared as a talent leader, HR leader, to see some of these situations when we talk about different talent. I'm wondering if you guys can share maybe a couple of the things you've seen in the past that you might see that I would call the classic issues of talent review. And or Joe, do you want to go first? So here's what I wonder about. I'm going to pull a Joe Garbus. I wonder if sometimes the classic challenges we see with talent review are less about the talent review itself and more about the work that we've done to create shared understanding and what we expect and what we need. So for example, you could ask about blockers, right? So that's kind of a classic one. Well, blockers exist or don't exist based on how we've classified what talent mobility needs to look like, what roles are critical or pivotal for development that we need to have access to. And so when we solve for, quote, the blocker, we're symptom managing. And the better approach is to sort of say, what is it that we need our systems to do for us and how do we get in front of those? Those are macro questions instead of looking at this box is filled by this incumbent and we wish they were in a different role so that we have an empty job to put somebody that we need to flow through. Another example might be gets great results, but is tough on behaviors is, you know, you always hear the talented jerk, right? Is sort of the expression. Well, if you've got good clarity on what it means to be a leader in your organization, the designation that that person is talented would be under scrutiny because in fact, they're not showing up as the leader that we need them to. So the fact that you're in this imaginary scenario, a group of people are discussing how much to weight his or her behaviors. We've missed the opportunity to get upstream to see this is the role of behaviors in our organization. And this is what leaders look like. And this is what it means to be a successful performer as a leader. So without oversimplifying it, I do think where there are chronic issues that are coming up in talent reviews for any number of reasons, stopping to think about what's behind those and where does that actually originate is a far more productive exercise than trying to debate in the room. Behaviors matter 20%. As long as they do three out of the four, it's okay. These are almost fictional distinctions that we can make. It's so much better to pull up and say, what is it that we care about here? What is it that we need? And what are the systems and decisions that we need to make to enable those things? And let's talk about the decisions or investments we really should be coming out of a talent route. What are we really trying to do from that perspective? Joe, do you want to start? Yeah, I think there's a couple of very micro things. Or if you unpack some of what Anne was just saying the issue for me would be to come out of those conversations 
with some real decisions and a set of actions that you can take. So moves, formal actions, if you will, a conversation that needs to happen that close the gap of information, actual promotion or a move potentially. I don't want to conflate processes, but there might be something that you could be planning for that we know someone will need in the next four to six months. Those triggered additional actions, I think, are important. How would talent X like Y if we don't know right now? Would they be willing to take that lateral to have that next two years to prepare for the big job, as an example? Who do we need to engage? I think one of the things that strikes me as I was listening to Ann talk about these upstream issues that we want to solve for, operating definitions, the big macro that we're really trying to solve for versus the knit, is just really get micro on the actions. And even on the follow-up to those actions, which I know is something we've talked about a lot, JP and Ann, in the past. This notion of if you don't get to a place where you can actually write down the action, the owner, and the time frame, then I think you've missed something. It should be literal in that way. That simple. It's, you know, Joe will go to X course. Joe will be prepared to move to Paris in eight months. And so being super micro about what we walk out with, I think, is important. And there's nothing that's superficial. I don't think anything's too small to show up as an action coming out of the talent review. It's, in my mind, that important. And your thoughts? I completely agree. And I think one of the things I've seen go wrong with talent reviews in the past is that we create such a buildup, months of preparation and pages of paper. And so what often happens after a talent review in some places I've seen is there's actually fatigue. People, I'm so glad to be done. And it's one of those moments where you want to say, we've just begun. The work is actually begins, it begins now. This was to prepare for a conversation to help us decide what work to do. And now the work begins. And so this notion of helping people understand the system of work and what role the talent review itself plays and the fact that that sort of sits in the middle of processes that happen both before and after and that there's work that happens all the time. It's this idea of taking as much out of the talent review as you can to Joe's earlier point, making it as simple as you can so that you're saving some of that stamina for the action planning. And the specificity is really important. The ownership is really important. Joe talked about both of those. I would say the follow through, keeping up to say two months later, three months later, you said that the person would go to this class in February, it's March. How was the course, right? And making sure that there's really that drumbeat and navigating this balance between consistency and intensity and consistency wins. So making sure that there's just a solid ongoing kind of even form of pressure on this work instead of what can sometimes get lumpy if we're not careful is really important. And I'd add that consistency builds fluency. And so when you're more fluent to the points we've been making around how things get done, operating definitions, you know, sort of continuity, that fluency allows you to then do things in quicker, faster, more sort of targeted ways. What do I mean? At the next leadership team meeting, let's just spend 10 minutes talking about two of the talents that we were talking about earlier. Where are they? What's going on? What's happening? And we're done. No paperwork involved, right? So I think that sort of fluency helps diving into it where it becomes part of your running process. It's part of how you're doing your work, how you're getting together and having discussions. And it's in the flow of work which makes it that much easier to do and that much more meaningful. I think that's so true. And I think sometimes it's a bit of a mind shift because to kind of the unindoctrinated, that will seem less rigorous. 
but I don't think it is, right? It'll seem less rigorous because it's less fixed. It's a little bit less formal even, but it's every bit as effective because to your point, you're putting it in the flow of work. You're saying this is so important that just like every other business factor, we're talking about it in an ongoing way. We're talking about it as it relates to several other factors or variables in our business. And it's always a lot. It doesn't get done and then shelved. I think that that's so important, Joe. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. So I want to see if there's any final words of advice for folks who are looking to up their game in talent review. And I'm going to start with Joe first. And we just draw on a lot of the things that we've discussed. And it's been such a fun discussion. So thank you for leading it. But keep things very targeted and outcome oriented. Keep things very smart and simple based on real data but also simplicity and sort of the elegance of simplicity, right? Being able to really get things done. And then the pull through, it is so, so, so important. How do we get further, faster? And the way to do that is actually to land on concrete, simple actions that actually move in the needle every day for our talent. So get the macro right, get it smart, get it simple and pull it through. I can't possibly answer that. I would just say I agree. And it's been a lot of fun to be part of this conversation with you both today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, Joe. This was tremendous. I think a lot of people are going to get a lot of value out of your tips and tricks and advice on how to take talent review to the next level. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR Podcast. Thanks again to Anne and Joe for sharing their wisdom on what really makes talent reviews effective and successful it was a true masterclass on the topic. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. And if you enjoyed this episode of Future of HR, be sure to subscribe and share our podcast with at least one other person. This really helps us grow the podcast and helps with our mission of inspiring the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with the world-renowned Peter Block. Peter Block is an author and citizen of Cincinnati, Ohio. He's a partner in Design Learning, a training company that offers workshops designed to build the skills outlined in his books, including his classic book, Flawless Consulting. In my conversation with Peter, we'll discuss what HR leaders can do to be better consultants for their business leaders and why consulting is a critical skill that we all need to develop. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.